Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm not finished yet. It took me a long time to get here. Both parents have, have spoken with each other and... Uh, and they regret what happened. They've had a frank discussion with each other, and they're, they're both of them are keen to, to now focus on getting back to their county jerseys. But these fellas will get such a shell shock next Saturday evening that we'll put them back in their houses for 10 years. So we have a goalkeepers team show today, Connor. Um, we've Raymond Galligan uh, coming up, all star goalkeeper this year for Cavan, and we've Anthony Nash. Um, obviously was under study for a long time under Donal O'Cusack, uh, made his debut for Cork in 2012, won an All-Star that year and then was uh, shortlisted for Player of the Year in 2013. So he went from rags to riches uh, very quickly. A very interesting one really with Raymond Galligan is like uh, p- most people will know that that listen to the show is, you know, he was a forward. Um, up until 2015, when his clubmate Terry Hyland converted him into a goalkeeper, said, look, you're not fast enough to play out the field. We're going to move you into a goalkeeper. Went from making his debut in 2010 for Cavan as a centre forward, taking the freeze, scored 10 points that day against Ross Common in the first round, six frees in a sideline and three from play. And this fella is the next big thing as a forward, Connor. And then five years later, finds himself third choice goalkeeper. Like I mean, and now and now is an all star, which is really is an incredible story. Yeah, he really just had to bide his time, didn't he? Uh, <laughs> but he obviously had something. Listen, like he mightn't have had the pace, but he obviously had the kicking ability. That's why Terry Highland must have spotted it in him. Yeah. But I'd say when he was third choice keeper, he wasn't thanking Terry Highland for making him uh, making him go back to goals in the first bit. Well, that was the thing. So like I mean, he was third choice goalkeeper. So when Connor Gilson and got 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 injured in the league in 2015. It was another goalkeeper, Farrelly uh, fella, came in. So it, it wasn't just, oh, look, you're third choice. He was literally third choice. And then got his break before the championship. Um, and that hasn't looked back since then. So I'm looking forward to talking uh, to him because he's obviously proven my point, Connor, which sometimes people think it's a converse, con- uh, controversial thing to say is that any decent outfield player can play in goals. Now, some people don't like hearing that, especially goalkeepers, but Raymond Galligan is live is living proof that that's a fact. Well, it's a good job we have two expert goalkeepers here on to talk about it, Willie. And I'm not talking about Raymond Galligan, and Anthony Nash, and talking about me and you. But uh, I well, worked... I played. I played. I was goalkeeper for the school one year. Well, f- far be it for me to stick up like I. I've never played in goals, Willie, and I never want to play in goals. But I do come from a club with a long line of tradition. Like like Kelchamar for years has provided keepers to the Mayo uh, underage and senior teams and most of my uh, a lot of my playing career was uh, in front of Peter Burke which is a real privilege he's unbelievable keeper for, for Mayo and Kelchma for a long time so I do have to kind of stand up for them to a certain degree in that I get you in terms of outfielders obviously they're proficient in catching the ball because everybody has to do it they have to be decent at kicking the ball and with before too long they can become fairly good at kickouts but I'd say there's still a, li- a long way to go in terms of like agility their command of the area in particular, 
and maybe organising a defence that you can't just throw any old outfielder in goal. Ah, uh, listen, every player, every outfield player has to be in command of his area in the air. Uh, there is a few little technical things you need to learn, but listen, I'm not going to listen to this. Any of, but it, <laughs> the one thing I, I always laugh about this is how upset goalkeepers, you know, these lifer goalkeepers, like Cluxton plays outfield, uh, he's like an intermediate level forward. He's not too bad. You know, Fergal Byron, Leash All-Star, he played corner back at under-21 level when they won in uh, Leinster. You find a lot of goalkeepers, Niall Morgan plays outfield for his club. Like, you find a lot of goalkeepers get very defensive when you say this to them. And then I was thinking the other way around. Like, I play corner back as minor. I played wing back as minor. I played wing back under-21. Wing back uh, at senior, then I played full forward at senior. Now you don't see Peter Canavan getting, you know, his nose out of joint because I went from corner back up to full forward. Do you know what I mean? Goalkeepers are a little bit oversensitive to this. Uh, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I, I just, I just know, Willie, that like you say, you played in goals before. I never did. Any time I stand, you know, the odd time you might stand in goals in training, and it was so easy to beat me. And you know, just did, didn't have a clue in terms of positioning, in terms of agility. That might be just me my kind of personal abilities and all-rounder but I anytime I did it I had more respect for goalkeepers afterwards because I kind of appreciated what they what they had to do a little more and maybe as I said that's because I was used to playing in front of really good goalkeepers because you know we always had them at my club but listen I don't I think we're going to have to agree to disagree on this one given how strongly you obviously feel on the matter <laughs> um, Kevin actually had to recruit uh, Republic of Ireland goalkeeper Gary Rogers as a goalkeeping coach to help Raymond along. So he obviously deserves credit. I'm, I'm joking, obviously. I'm trying to wind up goalkeepers, but there are loads of technical stuff that you obviously have to learn um, as a goalkeeper. My point is, is that you can learn them, you know, like any position. You know, I think that's that's fair. Anthony Nash then uh, will be coming up in part two. He obviously responsible for the Nash rule. I've had Anthony on the show before. I never spoke to him about the Nash rule. Um, Anthony made his debut in 2012. He got a penalty against Wexford, which he scored. Uh, Anthony, the only way I can describe Anthony Nash's penalty technique is, I hope this isn't disrespectful, do you know the way a volleyball player throws the ball way up ahead of themselves and does this big kind of smash serve? That's the way he did the did the, the, the penalty. So he'd take the penalty from the 21, and by the time he'd hit it, he'd be in on the 13. Yeah. And he got away with this all through 2012 until the final. He got a penalty in the final, and Patrick Kelly rushed out to save it. So while the ball was hanging in the air and Nash was ready to whack it, Patrick Kelly was running out to meet that. And Stephen O'Keefe then did it in 2014 where he got it. I think he got it in the backside. And the the GA says, we have to do something about this. This is a player welfare issue. Nash is going to take the head off somebody at some stage. And the Nash rule, it was called. And now penalties are taken. You can't come inside the 21. Um, and it's changed actually since then, where it's turned into a one-on-one -on -one penalty. So, you know, he's had a huge impact on GA in his career. Yeah, and, and to be fair, like I think that rule was fair. As much as I loved, there was there was a real sense of excitement any time Anthony Ash got a penalty. Ah, there was, yeah. That's because you knew what he was going to do, especially and that year particularly, twenty thirteen was uh, was very exciting as well, just with the emergence of Clare and stuff like that. Stephen O'Donnell in the final, but something did have to be done. To be fair, like Patrick Kelly, fair play to him. Stephen O'Keefe was particular. You have to have a fatalistic streak, I think, if you're running out, if you're sprinting towards a guy who's probably the hardest hitter of the ball in hurling, and not only that. He's hitting it from a closer distance uh, than you're meant to from an actual penalty. But all you have to go do, all you have to do if you want to justify the introduction of that rule is to go back and look at Stephen O'Keefe's leg after he blocked 
I've never seen a bruise like it. It was unbelievable. But having said that now, and Anthony Nash has made this point, and I'm going to put it to him, and he makes a point. What if a fella catches a ball just outside the six-yard box? And he catches it clean and I'm standing on the goals. Do Should I tap him on the shoulder and go, here, go out to the 20-meter line because it's a bit dangerous if you hit it from there? Do you know what I mean? That was Anthony's argument at the time. Yeah, but this is where that, that's different and that's not a set piece. You know, was that, that, would that not be a kind of um, an argument against that? I don't Listen, Willie, the, the, the day I start wading into hurling arguments <laughs> is, is a dangerous one for me and everybody, I think so. Yeah. But that that would be my point, maybe that it, because it's not a set piece and you're in an influence, you're in a position as a rule maker to influence the penalty Whereas you mightn't be, I don't know, do you create another rule for situations like Anthony has imagined there? But it seems an easier fix for the penalty than, yeah. than that sort of thing. I know, well, the other, the other hypothetical, the other scenario is absurd that you would even think of telling a fella to go back out. You know, but anyways, that was his take. I'll, I'll ask him about it um, in part two. John Fogarty had a piece in The Examiner where he says water breaks could be here to stay. So he says there's been there have been discussions about the water break uh, becoming a permanent feature in preserving the playing surface for those directly involved. Now, let's break that sentence down. So John would obviously have good contacts in in Croke Park, and he's he's saying that there's been discussions about the water break becoming a permanent feature, right? So this year, fair enough, it'll be probably be a permanent feature. This COVID thing hasn't gone away yet. That's grand. You'd imagine, surely that's the end of it then after this year. But listen to the second part of the sentence. Uh, could become a per- permanent feature in preserving the playing surface for those directly involved. Like, if they're going to keep this water break so that they don't want to, because obviously the Mayor Ferna and the, you know, the, he, they've been banned and water carriers are not allowed in the field. Is this to preserve the feckin', the the playing surface for the players? And the reason I find this hilarious is because I was a sideline reporter for News Talk for years. And I used to get in terrible trouble in Croke Park because I'd come out, I'd be on the Hogan stand side and the dressing rooms were on the Cusick stand side. So when the game would be over, the players would be walking away from me, you know, towards the Cusick stand. So Mm. I wasn't allowed on the pitch. So I used to just, you know, leg it across the pitch. So I'd be there waiting as the players are passing me and try to get a a post-match interview. And then Croke Park demanded that I walk, I can't walk across the pitch. Now, I'm in a pair of bloody Converse runners, like I'm like a pair of slippers. It's not like I'm walking out onto a white carpet with dirty shoes or mucky shoes that, like your mother would give you a little clip for. So <laughs> what they wanted me to do was to walk the whole way down around by the canal end and back up. And sure, by the time I did that then, I'd have lost the fellas probably, you know, a lot of them are the ones I wanted going in off the pitch. So it might sound absurd to people listening here now that they would be even considering keeping the water break to keep player keep anyone other than players on the pitch. But I first had the experience that this could easily be the case. Did the Crow Park not think about Willie the, the potential for you to provoke the the the, the crowds or whatever step you were walking past the canal end and somebody walking past <laughs> and somebody saw you walking past and might start giving you a bit of guff. But uh I thought, sorry, I, I'm interpreting this wrong, Willie. I thought that this, the water break was to become a permanent feature so you don't have water carriers and you don't have them, it, you know, you don't have them interfering with the play during the play so that players aren't allowed to have a drink during, you know, during normal play and they have to wait wait for the water break because the playing surface rule seems a bit ridiculous. You know, if it's if it's particularly for the playing surface alone, that seems a bit ridiculous to me. So unless I've got the wrong end of the stick here, I don't know, I, like it, it just... If, it, if it's for that reason alone, it seems ridiculous. If it's like, uh, I don't agree with the water breaks anyway, but I can nearly see a point if they want to, pre- you know, prevent people from running on the pitch during the play. 
Yeah, no, it's more to, yeah, I, I would accept it if it's interrupting play or it's, you know, it doesn't look great if because there's been occasions where Mir Fuernes have got involved in the play, you know, and it doesn't it doesn't look great. But I'd, I would hope water breaks are gone after this year. I don't think, I hate, I hate breaking the game down into quarters. I hate it. And, you know, I don't think it has much support. We'll ask Raymond and Anthony because, like, I mean, even in that piece, Liam Cal and Paul Murphy were, were, were asked about it. And nearly all players are saying the same thing. If, if you're leading, you don't want the water break. But alternatively, could be losing and the water break is a lovely little break in play. You know, it, 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 there's no there's no right, you know, there's no defense of it or, or there's no critique of it because you could be in either situation. So just get rid of it. Yeah, well, well, this might sound like a ridiculously simple. You've kind of hinted at it already, Bully, but if you leave water breaks a permanent feature, you're changing a game that's been two halves you know, as long as it's existed into four quarters. And I know that sounds simplistic, but it has a huge impact. And like yeah. we saw that, like, to be honest, I actually, I actually didn't think it impacted on county games, inter-county games as much as it did a club. Any club game you watched on TV last year, do you remember when the club games were on TV there during, like before the inter-county championship started? The water break had a massive impact on every single game. And I know that every, play, every club game I played last year, it had a huge impact. I mean, completely changed the flow of the game. It just... You you can't you you speak about it beforehand. You're like you know we'll have a water break, so we have to be able to you know not let that momentum shift happen. And it always happened. And I don't know that that say more about the the better concentration levels of inter county players than club players that it didn't. I don't think it impacted as much. But it's it's just it would be a completely fundamental shift in the game. Yeah. I just I I think I, I I don't know. I'd be I'd be against it. I mean, you're talking about. I mean, if, like, if, if it is to prevent people from coming on the pitch, I think there's ways of doing it that prevents the game from being divided into four quarters. I think that the, the ability of it to affect momentum, I think, is too much. And I don't know, I just I'd be in favor of any alternative, basically, that would prevent the water break becoming a permanent feature. So you're dividing the game into four as it is, you know, as opposed to two, which it already is and has been for as long as as long as we know. Yeah, well, that's it. I, I'm sure that would have to be a motion be brought to Congress to allow that to become a permanent thing. You couldn't imagine it would get uh, too much support. Maliki Clerken had a great piece in the Irish Times uh, this week, and he's talking about um, a case will become will come before the High Court in Belfast on behalf of an eight year old footballer from Maharafelt, County Derry. His parents are challenging the COVID restrictions laid down by the Northern Ireland Department of Health that effectively prohibit children playing organised team sport during the pandemic. Um, it's a mother pre- uh, presenting evidence of an eight year old boy showing physical and behavioural deterioration and arguing that the banning of youth sport for nine of the past 12 months is the major contributing factor. We've mentioned this before, Connor, on the show about how children cannot, who are very, very low risk and being outside in the fresh air, especially in wintertime when it's windy and etc., it's so low risk. Drop them off, collect them again. And the benefits that they will get from playing sport with their friends and meeting their friends by far outweighs the risks that are associated to anybody else. And it's just a head scratcher how the hell this is continuing because we've come out of the worst of it now in January and February. Like at the end of the day, it's so low risk outdoor sports. Children are such low risk. They're allowed back to school. It's just cannot believe it. So there's solicitor Stephen um, Atherton. He said, And for me, he's speaking a lot of sense. He says, we accept that the state is entitled to infringe on the human rights of the population on public health grounds. That is absolutely true. But legally, you have to do a cost benefit analysis. 
what is the benefit of the of this restriction? We're saying that the benefit to public health of preventing kids playing sport cannot be demonstrated. They say there are concerns over mobility and the movement of people, but that's not evidence. In fact, the scientific evidence shows how minimal the dangers of transmitting between children are. We also argue that not only can they not demonstrate any benefit to public health, they haven't undertaken an appropriate consideration of the harms that these measures are causing to children. Now, is that not well put? At what point is a cost kind of analysis going to be done and say, right, here's a benefit. How much benefit is there of banning sport? Not a huge amount because it's so low risk. And, you know, what what are the damages that it's causing to the people that we're pro- prohibiting from playing the sport? Yeah, that, that, that that's a very important point to make, Willie, in that, like, we can see, listen, nobody's, we've said this often enough, it doesn't need to be repeated as well, but nobody is saying that the situation isn't very, very serious and the impact of COVID has had such an impact on loads and loads of people. But we can see we can see the tangible impact in terms of the figures that we see all the time. Do you know what I mean? In terms of the number of cases, the number of people that have sadly passed away or whatever. Whereas it's hard to produce that tangible evidence for the other side of it. Do you know, as in it's hard to you don't have numbers to dem- you don't have as 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 clear numbers, let's say, to demonstrate the amount of people that have been affected by not being able to participate in sport, the amount the impact that that's had on people's mental health and stuff like that. And when I first saw this, the the, the important thing to mention, Stephen Adderton makes his case very well. Uh, the, the piece that Malky Kirkman wrote is very good, very sensible. And it's just like it's not frivolous at all, as in like that's that's the point that Malky makes is that like there's a there's a judicial system in Northern Ireland that prevents if this was a frivolous case that these parents are making, it would be got rid of from the get go. But yeah. the Department of Health in Northern Ireland considered that there's that there's a reasonable case to be made here. Do you know what I mean? And just in terms of what you said there about getting the kids back, for me, it was a no brainer. Like as soon as the schools are back in an indoor setting, it seemed to me a no-brainer to get them together in an outdoor setting. And you just have to, the, the risk of transmission, if you said there, isn't them being outdoors. It's maybe the, it's the transporting to and from training. But you have to trust the people involved in these sports to be able to look after that. As They, they did such a good, good job last summer and they're going to do such a good job if you trust them to do, do it again, which hopefully people yeah. will see and do it from next month onwards. So Maliki had it in that piece. And again, we're specifying that this is children we're talking about, not even arguing for I would me personally, I would be in favor of all teams being allowed train outdoors. But we're only talking here in this example for children. For bloody yeah. children, there's such low risk. And Maliki had in the piece, it was reported in the Sunday Times that in 12 months of detailed tracing of positive COVID tests in professional soccer, American football, rugby league and rugby union, there hasn't been a single case of on-field transmission. Now, like, I mean, that's just incredible. So, like, it, it's just, it's, it, I, I, I can see a lot of problems coming down the road if court cases like this are going to be brought for the government not allowing people train and and uh, exercise outside. I can see they're, they're, you know, open up a big can of worms. And again, you know, do the, do the, does the damages outweigh the benefits? You know, that's the question you have to ask. Paddy Christie actually has a great piece with Niall McIntyre on Sports Show. And he said, and Paddy's been very fair in the piece again. And again, because it's such a sensitive subject, you have to qualify everything that you say and be yeah. sensitive to the people that have lost people, lost loved ones and lost um, relations and people who have been very sick. There are other people then who've had it 
um, like people I know who didn't even know that they had it. So you know, it's it's a, it's a very strange it's a very strange um, you know respiratory virus. But Paddy Christie was saying um, on sports show, I don't want anything to happen to my mother and father. And needless to say, you're careful about things. On on the other hand, personally speaking, I don't think I'm prepared to throw my two kids under the bus to save my parents. That's a very crude way of looking at things. I'd like to see them both looked after. But at the moment, we'd seem to be heavily sided on looking after the elderly and certain groups in society. It's never it's it, I don't think anyone's arguing. Like I see what Paddy's saying there. I don't think anyone is arguing to say that, you know, you don't want to throw your children under the bus to save your parents. You would like to think a balance can be struck where your parents can be protected and your children can exercise and meet friends and, you know, in a safe um, manner. I think that we probably leave it on that point, Connor. Yeah, well, just to say that, like Paddy Christie spoke, as he seems to speak on every subject, he spoke a lot of sense on on this particular topic. And the one thing that's that stood out to me was he was talking about his own children, and just said that they they'd become kind of withdrawn and kind of shadows of themselves. Yeah. Um. You know, over the last few months, even the last year, because they're not being exposed to the, I suppose, the type of outdoor activity that they're used to, like training with their with their friends and stuff like that, and. I think we mentioned this already, but like, like you know, I, I can I can I can give it to if I'm told I can't play football for you know six months a year, I can live with that. You know, I don't like it, but I can live with it. But a year for for a child, it it, it has potential to make a big impact. You know, long term, and that they they start to become accustomed to it, and it'll take a long time for them to kind of overcome it. So as we said here, like it's not the case for adults we're making; it's for children, and I think especially. Yeah. As I said, after they've gone back to school, I think the next step is inevitably and should be that they're allowed back playing sport again. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Like I, I have a neighbour and her daughter's, I think she's in around the 11, 12 kind of bracket, but her birthday is in April. So she missed her birthday last year and now she's going to miss her birthday again this year. Like that's two birthdays at the age of 12. Like it's, yeah. you know, one sixth of your birthdays at that age when they're so important to you and you're missing both of them. I, I just think that kind of stuff is cruel on mm. on children um, at this stage. Ronan McCarthy, um, right. So I think Ronan McCarthy needs to cop on it. I don't want to talk about this too much because we obviously know what he did was wrong. He was training outside. He was in breach of GEA, uh, no training uh, restrict or no no training rules, and he was also in breach of government COVID rules. That's not why he got the ban. He got the ban because of the GEA rule, but he appealed it. Um, he appealed. Paddy Talley appealed and got it down to eight eight weeks. Ronan McCarthy appealed and he lost his appeal to the hearings committee, and then he went to the to the next one, which was the appeals committee. And he's failed in that one as well. So now he's going to wait and see um, to bring it to the DRA, because that's obviously the three stages um, for your appeals. And I don't know what he's playing at. So his ban started on the February 18th. He can't have any involvement with the squad until the middle of May. Now, how 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 big most of most of his uh who's going number one who is going to be monitoring zoom calls talking to his panel for one so he can just forget about that up until the start of april so his ban really is only a month to probably start training the 5th of april up until the middle of may he's looking at maybe a five six week ban and let's be honest how come on you just train your change your training session somewhere in Cork and take take the bloody session give me a break Ronan will you just let that go that's my take on that uh yeah I'm I'm pretty much the same Willie I mean I we spoke about the the band for Paddy Daly and Ronan McCarthy a few weeks ago and I didn't have much sympathy for either particularly considering the um the stance that the GA had taken on collective training before Christmas and probably more pertinently but the the situation that the country was in 
on the 2nd of January when when the Cork team were caught on the beach in public. I, I mean, I just, I some some felt the ban was a bit harsh. I, I, I didn't think it was too bad because I think you have to crack down on these things eventually. So, and then, as you said, by the time everyone's back training, his ban will effectively be five to six weeks. And I think at this stage, like <laughs> there are ways and means around if he wants to be involved, you know what I mean? Especially in the planning and all these Zoom calls and stuff like that. He's going to be involved. Nobody's going to be monitoring that. There's probably ways and means for him to be involved in the eventual training sessions. But at this stage, you know, you, he, he he's exhausted every avenue. Anyway, just like take well, it on. Not the yet. Yeah, not yet. Well, he can still go to, yeah, he can still go to the DRE. I don't think it's a good look for him. I think he should let um he should let it go. But anyways, Connor, so he captained Kevin to an Ulster title in November. Followed it up with an all-star after some great performances in the championship. Not bad for a man who only started playing in goals in 2015. It's Raymond Galligan, and he joins us on the line now. How's it going, Raymond? Not too bad, Colin. Thanks very much for having me. No bother, no bother. Come here, is it fair to say that you were a jack-of-all-trades and now you're a master of one? Um, well, <laughs> I still make that. That's still questionable now, to be honest. But uh, yeah, I've definitely seen a few different positions uh, with Calvin, that's for sure. Well, like, I mean, let's be honest. You moved into goalkeeping in 2015. Um You've now got an all-star, which is the highest accolade you can get in a specific position. You beat Stephen Cluxton to an all-star, and he's, I think he's undoubtedly the best goalkeeper we've ever seen. So, like, I mean, it's not bad going. I know you're going to be modest. Ah, yeah, no, look, I had a, I, I had a great uh, couple of months there. I was very lucky, you know, the performances kind of went my way. And, you know, the finish up with an all-star at the end of the year was lovely, like, for myself and for my family and club, but... Um, yeah, like it. It was definitely a roller coaster. A couple of years trying to learn the trade of goalkeeping, and to find myself then uh, this year picking up the All Star really was uh, dicing on the cake, I suppose. So let, let's get into this uh, transformation because I'm very interested in this. I've made some comments on the show here, Raymond, and look, they haven't always gone down well with goalkeepers. But I've always said that a good outfield player can easily turn into a goalkeeper, especially with you. Tell us about where you started off. Like you were the marquee forward at underage level, and you made your debut with the Cavan Seniors in the league and scored 10 points. You were the free taker, you were the full forward. Yeah, so, um, like that, yeah, so all, all my underage, I probably played outfield at minor and under 21, played like uh, 40 midfield kind of area, and then when I moved in on the senior panel then, like back in 2006, a uh, number of years, I was kind of in and out in the league and that getting in full forward, centre forward, playing league games, McKenna Cup. Couldn't really nail down championship start um, till like 12. And then, um, yeah, I think that my full forward days were just kind of running out and Terry Hyland basically gave me an ultimatum. He said, like, I'd try a third chase goalkeeper um, and you can train for a couple of months um, and you get a, an opportunity with a challenge game between the league and championship in 15. And he said, that's really all I can guarantee you because uh, there's a line of full forwards at the time. We had Gibney and Keating, Niall McDermott. Yeah. There's a whole, some great lads. So I kind of knew myself, like, I wasn't going to make it um, in around that area. So I said, I'd try this out. And I suppose I ended up, we played New York in a challenge match um, over in New York. And... Um, yeah, that went well, and I ended up making it against Mon in the championship that year. Right, and you haven't looked back yeah. since. So, like, I mean, how psychologically could you change, you know, from being a scoring forward, which you still were with your club the whole way along, I'm fairly sure you still are, and to change to being standing there with not a whole lot to do for a lot of a game? Yeah, I suppose it's just like, it, it, it just kind of comes back to do you really want to 
play, you know, because like obviously in 15 and 16, like you're nearly the butt of a lot of jokes, kind of going back to the club and your third child's goalkeeper and the wards out, you're kind of like, <laughs> <laughs> things are, you're a bit of a, things are going too well in training and you can't really dive. And so we kind of just worked so hard, I suppose, in 15 behind the scenes, like Gary Rogers was our goalkeeping coach and I used to get a couple of extra sessions with the likes of Shane Supple, like I was living in Dublin. So I was literally trying to train as much as possible on the quiet behind the scenes to improve my goalkeeping and I suppose when I got my chance then I suppose I'd put in that much work and watched the lads I just like gave it everything and just very lucky it went my way when I got my chance and yeah like it's look it, it, anybody can do it if they put their mind to it like it's the, it's the shot stopping was the big problem for me because I suppose I had the luxury of being able to kick off the ground um, yeah so yeah that was the big bit of work and you know that's you're ever trying to improve that I suppose and the shot stopping well, Terry, Terry Hyland made an interesting comment. Um, I was reading an article and he says, if your team is set up properly with a good defence, there shouldn't be any more than three shots on a goalkeeper in a game. Three max. Between points and wides, you're looking at an average of 25 to 30 restarts in a game. And that's your most that's the most important part of a goalkeeper's role. So the way he looked at it, and we know Terry Hyland would have been one of the more you know defensive managers, he would have saw your ability to kick out and your ability to play a bit of football as being more important maybe than the shot stopping at that time or maybe the fielding and stuff? Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, that was it. Back then, I suppose, we were... Joe Brody put a lovely name on us back about <laughs> being the Black Gate in 14 and that. And I suppose we were somewhat defensive in, in, in that time. But like that, it suited our, our team. And, you know, we had we had a great time in 2016 getting promoted and we had a good run in the championship. So it suited us the way we, we were playing. But like that, yeah, we didn't have a lot of goal opportunities as we would now because I suppose we play a much more attacking game and you know we do leave ourselves obviously at times open but I suppose that's what you get when you kind of go more attacking so it probably now more than ever there's more shots on goal but uh, I suppose that kind of suits us now to be honest so yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's constantly changing you you mentioned that you were the third choice goalkeeper, like so. Connor Gilsonen was the first choice goalkeeper in two thousand and fifteen, and he was injured in the final league game against me. I think it was, and uh, James Farrelly came in instead of him. So there was no doubt the whole way through that league that you were third in the pecking order after you used to be a forward. Like I mean, were you thinking of packing it in at that stage? Uh like I suppose I was kind of just touching on to Terry like to be fair he was he was very, he's so straight like he's a, he's a he's a great man like that you know he was honest from day one and just told me like you know it's a very very slim chance that you get playing but he did guarantee me a, a challenge match and I suppose it was just kind of holding out and then I was starting to enjoy it as the league was going on like I, I didn't really travel many games with them in the league because like that they were just kind of bringing the, the, the lads that were talking out and um, right. so yeah so you're, you're just constantly training and, and, and going to games and kind of waiting your chance but um, yeah like that I was starting to enjoy it and fair the players were very like you know you know giving me a bit of praise that uh, you were sticking at it and it was just kind of when I got my chance then I was just lucky I took it and uh, yeah <laughs> it was uh, definitely a, a, a crazy year that in 15 that's for sure yeah because he's your club mate right Terry Highland yeah that's right yeah so he kind of You'd, ne- you'd never, you'd obviously never played in goals for your club. It's not like he had this insider knowledge that you could, you know, that he'd seen you, you know, playing in a game or two with the club. No, no, that's it. Like, yeah, I actually, <laughs> it's funny. I actually, funny. Like, I don't think I've actually ever played a full game with my club in goals to date. Um, <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, but I think Harry, Harry kind of figured that 
I did, my gears weren't really uh, up to scratch for out the field that he came in. Thought this might be a wiser move for me long term. Did he ring you after you won the All Star? Ah, he did. Yeah, I know. He's like, I think you know very well that Terry. Like, he's a uh, he's a great man, and like that, he's been uh, very good to a lot of the players since even since he he, he moved on from Calvin. So, uh, absolutely, yeah. Right. Was he bragging or was it a congratulations? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. He was just kind of congratulating me. All right. Yeah. Well, I'm sure he. I'm sure he knows. Uh, he had a part to play in it, that's for sure. Yeah, no, he definitely did. It was some call. There's yeah. no doubt. So you mentioned you mentioned uh, Gary Rogers and you mentioned Shane Supple. So, like, I mean, this is, again, back to my theory that outfield players are good at fetching. You know, they're good with the ball in their hand. You, especially being a free taker, your kickouts were sorted. What were the challenges then in the shot stopping and what were they able to teach you? Yeah, I suppose just more... Uh, position and feet work just you know, being able to kind of like move your feet that bit quicker getting across the goal spreading yourself um, and just being more of a presence around the goal uh, communicating as well with the backs and kind of right. just kind of getting so like it, it it sounds fairly straightforward but I suppose it's just like that um, yeah the shot stopping it, it is a big like that really is your 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 job when you're there to stop the goals and take the kick out so um, like that you're, you're constantly trying to work on it um, over the years and I'm sure every keeper is so um, but yeah I suppose you have to really want it as well because it's not it's not a luxury position really now either so um, yeah I just kind of wanted to kind of keep playing for Calvin and I just got the opportunity I suppose so I, I I mentioned this to Rory Began before. I think it was Neville Southall was talking about David David De Gea, the Manchester United goalkeeper, and he's brilliant at saving with his feet. And Neville Southall said, but technically, that's not what a goalkeeper is supposed to do, that you're supposed to move your feet, get your footwork in in, in a position so that you can save it with your hand. Yeah, yeah, but that's it. Like, I suppose it's... Uh... Yeah, I the fact that I had no real traits built up because I hadn't really been there before. Uh, getting the likes of Gary Rogers starting off with me was great because like he kind of showed me the best techniques to try and spread yourself and 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 you know get yourself across the goal as quick as possible. So I was really starting off with a blank canvas and um, you know like that. Uh, I was <laughs> there's lots of goals that buy me in 15 and 16. I think Tyrone copped it fairly quick in 16. <laughs> buy me one day, um, but uh, like that, yeah, you're trying to just constantly tweak it and get better, and you know, trying to make them save as much as possible. So yeah, yeah. So so like when the rest of the team are away and they're doing their training, any team I've ever been on, the goalkeepers are away doing their own kind of stuff, you know, and taking shots on each other, throwing the ball to the ground and all the warm up uh, drills. Like, do you enjoy that now? Have you completely changed your mindset to, you know, this this is the stuff I really enjoy rather? Or would you be looking up the other end going, geez, wouldn't have been great if, <laughs> if I was up there? <laughs> Yeah, no, no. I, I look. I am very like. I, I do really enjoy it because, well, I suppose we we do engage in in, in a lot of the trainings now. You know, like it, um, so much more football been played, and and you're you know being part of the games, albeit you're in the goals. But uh, no, like that, you're constantly trying to improve, and like kickouts is so important as well that you're you're amongst the team a lot more than you would have been maybe years previous, where it was a case maybe of you know get it out as far as you can and there wasn't a big emphasis on kickouts. Um so yeah, no, it's there's a nice mix of working on uh, working with the keepers, but also you're you're mixing with the players a, a lot there during the trainings now these days. Do you, get back. Yeah, when you get back, you better uh, clarify that one definitely. Clear and and like I mean, this year it was noticeable for me, well for Ross Common definitely and for yourself, that you went along with your kickouts a lot more this year. Is that fair enough? 
Ah, uh, yeah. Like I suppose we had the Thomas and the Garage and James Smith. There was numerous kind of men with a with a big presence that uh, like there were options for long kickouts and you know teams are really pressing up not more now to so the are maybe yeah. where previously would allow you a short kickout. So that option you have to have, you have that option now. I think to go long because teams are pressing up throughout the country. That's the thing, and like I mean, from a goalkeeper's point of view, I'm sure when there's a big press on you, sometimes I'd be pulling my hair out. There's a big press on a goalkeeper. He looks one way, he looks the other way. Now there's a bit of tension goes right throughout the team because there's nothing on, and then he ends up going long instead of just going right. There's a huge press on here. I'm going to act like this is no big deal to me and just go to one of my long targets. Yeah, definitely. I think it's like it's it's a lot about just you know making it as, as simplistic as, as you can when, when teams do that because like that there's no point in uh, taking major risk when, when you know you have a big presence in the foot forward line like if you're looking out like you take Donegal for example where they have such yeah. uh, you know a good foot forward line it's, and maybe conditions aren't great like it's not worth taking the risk of going short and putting your, every, the whole team under pressure like if it means putting it 70 yards into a position where you have maybe extra bodies like Worst case scenario, you lose it and it's still 70, 80 metres away from goal. Yeah. You know, so. well, well, that's the thing. And is that something Mickey Graham kind of would have instructed you or would you discuss this as a panel or would the corner back say, geez, in those instances, you know, it's not ideal for me to be t- you know, taking that ball. Because I often think that Dublin are so good at doing that. Just because they're able to do it doesn't mean that it's, you know, comfortable for every team. Yeah, like, no, like definitely stuff we work on in regards, like, um, you have an outlet and, 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 and opportunities for, for maybe a mismatch. But I suppose that it's probably the same with everything now is doing. They're kinda of looking at the opposition and seeing where maybe we could find space or, or who maybe be a good man to, to give a, a long kick out if we if we need or uh, to go short. But I suppose a lot of it depends on like the, the grounds, you know, when you're playing in the likes of Breffney and Clonus, you've got the luxury of space and it's a lot easier to put the ball into into them pockets where maybe in the likes of Armad always found it very tight. To, um, just a little bit narrower and things like that. Yeah. Crow Park again, it's completely different as well with the surface and everything. So it does have an impact, like on kickouts with the with the size of the ground as well. Yeah. How did you How did you you know find the aftermath of the Ulster final win? Like, I mean, your captain. I don't think you actually made a speech or did a speech not get shown on television. Yeah. No, we just kind of made. A, we decided before uh, on the Friday night of training that like if, um, we weren't going to make a speech. I know that sounds a bit arrogant like we're thinking what we obviously we were thinking if we if we, we get over the line the plan will be that we we'd hold out until we had the entire team there so when we got back to Bethany to do a speech because right. uh, like not only the 26 could be there so we said we'd hold out until everybody was there in back in cabin um in, in Breffney so right and did you yeah. did you make did you make the speech then back in in Breffney when you you, you had the the, the you, yeah. you basically lifted the trophy again didn't you yeah, yeah. So all the so all, the entire panel came in and met us in Breffney Park, and uh, just uh, it was just all the the players and just their 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 family, their mother and fathers and brothers and sisters, just all came in. So it was just all very low key, but it just kind of gave the entire panel the opportunity to kind of witness us actually lifting the cup and uh, give everybody an opportunity to kind of play feed a club. Cup up close, really. So yeah, no, that was a great. It was a brilliant call. Like I mean, there's no doubt that was a lovely touch. And considering you were such underdogs, it was a really good call, you know, to make beforehand. I'm sure you were very confident. Ah, yeah, like that. Sure, I suppose it was the way and the manner we kind of got to the also final that we yeah. kind of came back from 
10 points with Down and uh, 7 against Monaghan we were just slowly kind of building something special and um, you know we just felt if we kind of put a 70 minute performance against Donegal that we'd be there thereabouts and I suppose on the day everybody kind of done their job and we got over the line thankfully yeah, what I'd say the moment of the championship was the the free against Monaghan at the end, and how you weren't like you should have, you could have been fifteen points down at halftime in that game. Talking about riding your luck, and then like I mean, it was just incredible the kick out, the catch, the free, and like I mean, Jesus, it was a long way out, Raymond. Yeah, like yeah, it was all it was it was a bit mad. Now definitely watched it back a few times over Christmas, like and uh, it was all a bit mad the way it just kind of worked out, and I suppose it was like. More special the fact that like, it was Thomas, like my cousin, that won the yeah. kick out and, and and set me up for the free. But um, yeah, like that, Jesus, the lads really showed some uh, great determination to kind of just keep chipping away at Monaghan and like forced extra time. Sure, look, I suppose I was fortunate that got the accolades or the the reward for kicking the free. But um, like the lads put in so there's some monster scores uh, in the lead up to that. Definitely from the likes of Jerry Smith, Chris Connery, Groves, like there's some fantastic scores in that game as well yeah no no they're definitely isn't it mad that your cousins like your two Galligans and you played such a big part in his all-star and he played such a big part in yours yeah no absolutely I, I uh, called up from there at Christmas and uh, there was like these three crystal balls sitting on top of the mantelpiece and I said what are they for and he said also oh, final I think the morning game and I said that's it I'm going short next year <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah no it was a great year now that's for sure well that's the thing like I mean Kavanagh only had two All-Stars like in the 50 years of All-Stars until this year and then you go and get three so like I mean it must be a huge honour because I talked to Conor Sweeney last year and there's only three ever in Tipperary and he's one of the three you know like there's only five ever in Cavan. it's a short list that you'll always be you know that you're on yeah yeah I know like I suppose it hasn't really sunk in like it is a it is um, I think for my family especially like they feel very proud and like from my club especially having two in the one club like it is lovely and it's a bit surreal like um, I suppose it's just unfortunate that we can't kind of get back training to kind of have the banter and the bit of slagging and that to kind of really let it sink in and you know be able to kind of mix with the lads so I suppose it's you know where you'd be able to even go down to the club training and maybe mix with the underage and kind of have that little bit of fun with them you can't get that now and uh so I suppose on that side of things, it's just a little bit, it's a lot more quieter. And uh, yeah, but it is lovely now, I suppose, to be honest. Yeah. Before I let you go there, um, there's talk that the water breaks are, are could be here to stay. They're definitely going to be in this year. And there's talk in Croke Park that potentially they might keep them on. What's your thoughts on that? We were talking about it at the start of the show. Yeah, I suppose we're fairly, it's kind of, I've kind of mixed enough. Like it all depends on how you're going. Like it's, yeah. If you're on top, if you're on top and you have the momentum, like the last thing you want is a break. But I suppose like that, we've had lots of games last year that you know we we really needed that kind of minute or two to kind of reset and and, and just you know change tack. And uh, so I suppose like it can go with you some days, and and some days you really want, you don't want it. Uh, so yeah. We kind of would sit in the fence now with that one, to be honest. I think most people are most people are given the exact same reason as that, and is that they're breaking momentum, and sometimes that's awful for you, sometimes that's good for you. So, like, I mean, maybe that just works fifty-fifty. Do you think they're do you think they're a good idea, like, as in needing to rehydrate? You know, is that part no. of it? 
I don't think so. But if you're a goalie, it's not too bad. You have the water there. <laughs> you, supply, you, you supply the full forward line and the, and the full back line with water. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, no. I, I don't really think there's need for them. I think, like, lads are training away on their own now. So I think, you know, they're going to be going back in pretty good condition. So I don't really think there is major need for them, to be honest. Yeah, exactly right, Raymond. I've, I've kept you long enough. I know you have to get back to work. Thanks very much for taking the call. Not at all. Thanks very much, Willie. Yeah, great stuff from Raymond there. Um, just some bad news in Tyrone during the week. Uh, Connor Fergal McCann, he died on Monday night after a long illness. I think he had, I think it was cancer. He was only 47. Absolutely heartbreaking stuff. And he trained Tyrone to all Ireland's in 2005 and 2008. And I, like, I don't know about you, but I hadn't heard much about Fergal McCann. Um, he's one of these trainers who just likes to stay in the background, massively highly rated, you know, and they're in every county. There's other, some other trainers then who, you know, like to have a higher profile, you know, and that's fine as well. But the, the tributes to him, you know, were, were kind of noticeable. Um, Owen Mulligan said, never underestimate what this man did for Tyrone football. You can talk about the players and the managers we had in 2005 and 2008, but Fergal was a genius on the training field. You know, giving him huge credit for 05 and 08. Mickey Hart says, so we went over to Tony Donnelly's house. He had, Tony Donnelly had recommended uh, Fergal, he says, one night and met him and Fergal produced a file of training sessions he'd done with uh, Ocher. Um, he was so meticulous. He planned everything so well. He was very, very efficient. Um, when we wanted to take a look at certain aspects of our game, we'd be working out drills or he'd be working out drills immediately, drawing diagrams and pulling things together. He brought a great energy to it. And probably the best tribute I saw was uh, Philip Jordan, which um, he said, we, what set Fergal apart was the ability to make training drills relevant to match situations. Training drills are easy, but the ability to help players apply them in a match is what defines a great coach. Without Fergal, I would only have one All-Ireland. Thanks for everything you allowed me to achieve. On top of his ability as a coach, Fergal is one of the good guys in life. Isn't that an incredible tribute by Philip Jordan really there? Without Fergal, I would only have one All-Ireland. Yeah, yeah, it was really nice. And no more than yourself, Willie, I, I hadn't heard much much about Fergal and that probably speaks to his character. And like all, I always find, without wanting to tear everyone with the same brush, but that like these unsung heroes they often have more kind of affection with the players than maybe somebody who might, might want to stand out a little more. And that probably showed in the tributes from Philip Jordan and Owen Mulligan and Mickey Hart. But like, as I said, I hadn't heard much about him, but like what I do know, what I would say is that apart from this Dublin team, for example, that that 2005 to 2008 Tyrone team was probably the best I've seen. Maybe like the Kerry team of a similar era um, would be up there as well. But um, what, what Philip Jordan said there is really important too about, you know, the... We we spoke last week about like Kevin Welsh and philosophies and all this sort of stuff, but I think that like the ability to adapt to what a team needs is is so important as well. Like you know you might you might set out to play one way, but then you realise that your players are better set to maybe go in a different direction. And it sounds like from what um, Mickey Hart was saying, particularly about Fergal, that that he was brilliant at that and being able to adapt the training sessions to the way that Tyrone wanted to play. So it's just. I hadn't heard, so it made it even like it was just very sad to her hear he was only 47. I think he had two kids as well, so to be taken so young is just, just, just a real tragedy. Yeah, no, it definitely is. And it was interesting, the drills relevant to games. And you, you remember the All-Ireland final and I was at it and I'm, I'm always watching warm-ups and what to do and drills just before a game. And um, I remember Dublin doing a drill 
uh, in the warm-up that day and it was two two groups and it was a diagonal ball to the left, it was a 1-2 and they'd score a goal or a point after it and like the goal, the Dublin goal in the first minute came from James McCarthy winning the throw-in, um, gave a lovely little diagonal ball into Niall Scully who threw it back to him now the drill I saw was to James McCarthy take it on you know, but obviously players aren't stupid and you go, right, what's the drill or what's happening in front of me? And Dean Rocket then peeled off through pass to him, fastest goal ever in history. And it's like, it's adapting, right? We want to give diagonal balls, lads, you know, and instead of just getting players kicking diagonal balls, you're you're setting up a drill that potentially could be a match situation, you know? And I think good good coaches can can do that. And I've had good coaches who could do that. And then you have other drills which there's no real thought put into them, and like, which is fine as well, because some drills are good to warm you up, and that's all that they're designed for, which is fine. But then, if you're doing some stuff that is, you know, has needs a practical example of things you want to happen on the field, that drill definitely has to be connected with that, and you have to then play a match afterwards. And if you see it happening, and it, you know, it works well a couple of times that the players get praise, well done. See, you see how you see how it's working. See how you bring that into a game. That's that's what good managers and traders do because I've often got the training and you could do ten drills in a night and you just go from one station to the other like almost like circuit training and it's never explained why you're doing that and it's like what you know this this is grand at least there's a bit of variety to it but w- w- what's it all about? Yeah, and there's huge uh, there's huge satisfaction to be gleaned from like to, I'll be honest that hasn't really happened much in my career but there's huge satisfaction to be gleaned from when you've worked on a move for a long time and when you execute it. You know, when you execute it to nearly perfection on the pitch, there's just a knowing look between players that like that's exactly as you said there, that that's that's why we did that drill so often in training, as opposed to something. I, I know some drills that we're probably all used to and who whoever used the truck and trailer drill, for example, in a practical yeah. purpose on the pitch, where it might be good to kind of warm people up. But just on the um, the Dublin drill in particular. Um, I actually thought I think Niall Scully might have mentioned that he they kind of thought of it in the dressing room but I thought I'd seen that from Dublin before the only thing I'll have to say is from a like a Mayo point of view is I still as as really well executed as it was and with Kerry the year before I still don't think you should be conceding a goal from where it involves the midfielder running directly in a straight line towards goal at the throw-in but listen that 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 was for that was that was Mayo's fault and Kerry's the year before Dublin had their drill practice and they executed it to perfection so yeah, no, they definitely did. Um, listen, I think this, yeah, this is the last one before we get into Anthony Nash. Paddy Bradley, this is in the Irish News today. They had a two-part interview with Paddy Bradley. And, and I, this is just a great little story. I really enjoyed it. And uh, so I'll tell, I'll tell it to you now. So this is the last uh, league, or is this the league final in Paddy Bradley's first year with the with the county it was a league final match against Mead and Bradley was only he's only after turning 19 and he was on the bench and Eamon Coleman was the was the Derry manager obviously Eamon who managed him to an All-Ireland in 93 and he he used up all the substitutes and nearly every attacking substitute he had and Paddy was still left on the bench so Paddy goes home and he tells the story then he says I was telling my dad about it and my dad said ring the man and I said, I'm not ringing Eamon Coleman. You know, he'd managed Derry to an All-Ireland. Tell him what? And my dad says, tell him how you feel. And I'll never forget it. So I rang him. And Eamon Coleman says, who is it? Paddy Bradley. What are you ringing about? Well, Eamon, I was just wondering 
if you've something to say, come out and say it. So by the end of the phone call, I was saying, Eamon, you haven't a fucking clue. I'm the best forward you have and you yeah. need to be playing me. Now, this is obviously coming from a man who has had these conversations with managers. So I was just kind of laughing that he started out asking him, you know, how, how am I not getting the, a game? And I just need one kind of confrontational thing. You haven't a fucking clue if you're not going to start, start playing me. So anyways, uh, he says, you haven't a fucking clue. I'm the best forward you have and you need to be playing me. Deep inside me, I believed it, but I never expressed it or showed it. So I turned up to training in Owen Beg on the Tuesday night and I thought I better show it. Come Thursday night, Eamon names the team. This is for the championship against Cavan. Um, Eamon names the team and you could hear a pin drop whenever he named me corner forward. I couldn't believe it. And that was it. He picked me for Cavan having not played me the week before against Mead and him having played five forward subs before me. And he didn't talk to me before the Cavan game. I was nervous. Now, obviously, boys like Anthony Toll and Henry Downey will come up and talk to me. I scored three points in the first half against Cavan. It was my debut, but I'd come off with shin splints at halftime. I wanted, I wanted it to go so well, and I was crying when I had to come off. I remember Eamon uh, walking, by, uh, walking by me and leaning over and saying, I, knew, I always knew it was in you, Bradley, and with a wee, wee cheeky grin. He says, that was the class of Eamon Coleman. What a great little story. Yeah, I, when I, I was reading this earlier on, William, first of all, any time I saw Paddy Bradley's name, I was inserting your name. And then for, for Eamon Coleman, various leash managers that you've played over the years. And imagine in the conversations between the two of you. But uh, I know it, like, it, it's, it's told very well, you know, because it sounds like uh, sounds like Eamon Coleman was, was very kind of, uh, he was having none of uh, Paddy Bradley's guff at the start and it was a proper kind of, uh, they, they had it out properly. But uh, I, I'd say Eamon Coleman always knew that he was going to eventually end up playing Paddy Bradley. And he probably thought, after this conversation, do you know what? This fella has a bit of a cut to him. He's a yeah. bit difficult about him. He's prepared to kind of, prepared to put his money where his mouth is, let's say. Do you know what I mean? Do, so do, you, do, you, do you think that in this day and age now, where it has become so much about the team, that if a player said that to a manager now, you haven't a fucking clue, you need to start playing me. Do you think he could find himself out in his ear? Depends on the player, Willie. I would say, like, if, if this guy is, if the guy in Paddy Bradley's situation is a guy who's all attitude at training and who kind of is a disruptive figure let's say and stuff and like uh, he's maybe not the most reliable and then he comes out with that sort of stuff whereas yeah. if you some somebody who obviously like Paddy Bradley is ridiculously talented has you know uh, thinks he's been hard done by if he obviously was where there was five forward subs being played before him I think you'd weigh it up about the character in question and, and kind of what's what his personality is like because we probably all met them over the years Willie but there's plenty of people who are more than happy to shoot their mouth off about the reasons they weren't playing and then you give them their chance and they're not all that. Yeah. So it would be up to the individual manager to make that calculation about the specific player. I'd like to think that they could still do it in this day and age, even though it has become maybe more about the team. But there's always, if a player is good enough like that, there's always room for that little bit of kind of individualism as well. Yeah, I love the way Eamon Coleman didn't even give him a pep talk before the game. I'd say in Eamon's head, he's like, let's see this whippersnapper now. Let's see what he's going to do. He, he talked a good game on shoes tonight. I'm yeah. going to let him out there now and see what he can do. I'm not going to say anything to him. And uh, I suppose that's a good part of management as well. You know, let's 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 give him the bit of rope. See, does he hang himself or see, is he, is he good enough? And obviously, as it turns out, Paddy was definitely good enough. Um, I think it, I think that conversation personally reflects really, really well on Paddy and really, really, really well on on Eamon as well. Right, we'll leave it there, Connor, and we'll come back with Anthony Nash. Wake up. 
rise and shine winter's gone and summer's fine wake up wake up wake up rise and shine So last December, Anthony Nash retired from inter-county hurling after 16 years playing with the Cork Seniors. Actually, he won a minor All-Ireland in 2001. So he's playing with Cork about 20 years, uh, maybe in total. And he joins us on the line now. How's it going, Anthony? Hi, Conor. How are you getting on? How are you keeping Jesus? You're making me feel old there again. Now with that. <laughs> but that's some chunk of your adult life playing for Cork. Like, I mean, how are you coping without it? Um, yeah, no, it's like I actually, when I sat down afterwards, you kind of look back that everyone, like you put it correctly there, that you think that, oh, you played so many years for Cork at a senior level. But I suppose um, since I'm 16 years of age, I've been up and down the road to Cork. So, uh, so I suppose it was the main focus of my life for a long time. Um, you know what? I actually had a conversation with a couple of the lads there about us over the last couple of weeks. And they were asking me the same thing. How are we getting on? It's actually, in a weird way, I think it's a good time to get out of it because just with the way things are going with COVID and with the restrictions and everything like that, it's just not the same at the moment and it wasn't the same last year. Um, will I miss it? Of course I'll miss it. There's absolutely no doubt about that, especially when the weather starts to pick up and everything gets back open up again. Yeah. But, uh, but for now, I'm I'm okay. I'm okay, thank God. Yeah, you're definitely not missing it now because nobody's playing anyway. Come here, what was what was about what was it with the announcement on the sixth of December, the week before the All Ireland final? I was I think I was saying on the show at the time you're trying to overshadow the All Ireland final. Oh God, no! I'm not that important. <laughs> not that important. No, look, I suppose I had a conversation with Kieran. Uh, he was just starting to get things going again, and we had a chat. And look, we kind of had uh, lengthy enough chat after the tip match and stuff. And just at the end of the conversation, we kind of decided that look, that this year wasn't for me. Um, and in fairness to him, look, he was very, very good about it, and I was the same with him. There was no ill feelings leaving. So um, just wanted to put it to bed, you know, more than right. anything. Uh, I actually. Strangely enough, when I did up, you know, someone actually said it to me as well that, geez, you have to pick a good old week to do it. Like, and it, it wasn't even in my head. Like, I suppose, you know, that that, that timing wasn't meant in any way or anything like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, it actually was good in a way because it didn't linger too long when people were focusing on the other in the final rather than my retirement. So, I, I, I guess. I, I, which is good too. Yeah, in a way, yeah. So we kind of went under the radar a little bit more than it yeah. would have if it had been in January or right now. We'd be all over. We'd be all over it a little bit more. Yeah. Um, come here, so like, it's fair to say you served your dues with Cork before you got your break in 2012. Yeah, yeah. I, and do you know what? Like at the time, uh, frustrations and doubt, I suppose, were there whether I was ever going to be good enough to make it. Um, I've I've often said this before that like uh, there was a couple of times where I came home and I was demoralised and. My family actually spoke me back into going back up and uh, my parents especially kind of would have said, come on, you're good enough and drive on. And I never really believed this because even in 16, when I was 16, back in 2001, when we did win the minor alert, I actually, my father had to get me a trial. Um, my father rang a guy that he said, look, I think that, that I was good enough at the time. And I, we nearly had war inside the house because <laughs> I didn't think I was up to it at all at all. And fortunately it worked out well in the long run. But um, so there was times, yeah, but like, you know, I was behind two goalkeepers at the time that were were, were definitely um, superior to me. So um, it was just biding my time. Um, and I was enjoying training and I was enjoying having the friendships up there as well. And I knew when I was coming back to play for Cantor that I was coming back in a better place anyway. Um, but it was just that I was involved in a very good setup. And as I said, with players that I couldn't dream of becoming friends with, let alone, you know, like I used to watch them on TV and idolise them, let alone 
going into the dressing room, sharing a car with them and stuff like that. So it was an eye opener for a young fella from Cantorock to 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 get onto that panel, like. I, I suppose what kept you going maybe at that time is you're winning intermediate all Ireland. You know, you were getting some kind of maybe yeah, on-field yeah. enjoyment. Yeah, no, and do you know what? It was a great competition at the time. Um, like it was a very competitive game. I know, I can't remember the year now, but we drew with Kilkenny, and like you had Richie Power and his brother, and geez, you had John Tennyson was playing the same day, and uh, we drew with them and went to a replay. Unfortunately, enough, we won, but. I think it was a report at the time that they were two of the best hurling games of the year, like, you know, um, now obviously at the, a lower level at the time. But, geez, the competition was very, very, very competitive, like, so I was very lucky, yeah. And I was actually, I used to go out there some years and be, I'd be third choice for Cork on the bench. And then I'd play the intermediate game, run back in, tog out and go back out and warm up with the seniors, like. So I was actually involved in both um, in both games on the same day. Right. Um, but, you know, great. From, and you know what? I wouldn't have gotten where I was only for that competition either. Um, I wouldn't have gotten half the spotlight because at the time we were junior with Cantorque um, and I had gotten into college right, like, but apart from that the intermediate gave a good eye opener for me yeah. yeah so like I mean you went from six years like we're saying as understudy to Donal Logue to finally getting your chance and that's pretty much because Donal Logue got injured um, at the uh, I think in the in the league in 2012 then you end up almost rags to riches you go from being an understudy that not many people well I, I hadn't heard of you I'm not a hurling person I'm sure hurling people would have known known about you um, and then to an all-star in 2012 player of the year nominee in 2013 you know your penalties become a national debate the Nash rule kind of coming into effect in 2014 it really went from zero to boom yeah like I shouldn't have you wouldn't have been the only one that wouldn't have heard of me <laughs> um, I, yeah it was accelerated but the good thing and in a strange way like because no I didn't have a long career after because I started in goal from 27 years of age but I actually was at a good age to get in um, you can kind of be if I was fired in a 22, 23 yeah, uh, especially goalkeeper, you can kind of be maybe a little bit uh, inexperienced and stuff. So I'd learned off, geez, I'd learned off Martin Coleman, Don Lokusek for for a long time and watched what they were good at and tried to imitate some of the things, you know, and while still bringing my own thing. But uh, it was like, I, like, do you know what? No, there was like no one of the years under Dennis Walsh. There was reports going out in the newspaper that I was one of the lads left off the panel. Unfortunately enough, I don't know what happened, but. Um, but I, at the end of the day, I got a phone call to say this wasn't true. That it had reached the evening echo before, before it had reached the players, the two or three of us that were supposed to be drafted. And it wasn't. Right. Um, so I don't know what came first, was the donkey or the character, the character of the donkey. But it it worked out well in the long run. So like I, there was times there I was like I was training to train, you know, and I was going up and um, and before I got in, I can guarantee you that ninety nine percent of the GA community wouldn't have known who the hell I was or where the hell I came from. How, but what was it like kind of around that time for you? Because it must have been, you know, crazy, the whole controversy around the penalties. I was kind of liking them to a volleyball serve where you throw the ball way up ahead of yourself and come running after it. Like, I mean, it's some skill. And I saw you kind of playing it down and saying that, you, yeah, you were robbing yards, but you weren't robbing that much more than other players. It's just you threw it up way higher um, for whatever reason. Maybe you might explain why you did that. My legs were slower. I had to go higher. <laughs> or was it, heavy, was it the heavier hurl, maybe, to have to be able to get that kind of timing uh, right? Like, um, do you know what? Like, I, I spoke to my dad about it, and he was saying that he was the reason behind it. Like, there was a fellow here, the captain Cork as well, Kieran Murphy, the, the hero, is his nickname. He would have done a similar style. He was the first guy I ever kind of saw doing it. Um, and you know, I, I never, I, I don't know, like where where it initially came from. But the reason I threw it higher was, I suppose, to try and steal those yards. Um, but come here, I can guarantee you, like on many a training pitch or 
league games or Cantork or something like that, they would have gone pear shaped and I would have ended up in my arse, um, you know, trying to chase the ball. Like, but um, yeah, I don't know. Look, it was actually just before we played Wexford in 2012. I was told, literally in Turles, that I was taking the penalties. Um, so it wasn't that we had kind of worked them over the years to get to this thing. So right. Um, the controversy, the only issue I ever had with it was the timing of the rule change. Um, I had no issue with the rule change whatsoever because Tony Kelly and TJ Reid were starting to perfect it. So ironically, I would have been the one to get one in the throat <laughs> if we played them. So <laughs> I was glad they went back behind the 21. Um, it was just that, like, so we were in, like, no, did we play water in the league or was water in the championship? Or, championship. Sure. Uh, Stephen O'Keefe, I think it was championship. Yeah, yeah. and next thing all of a sudden, in the championship, a rule has changed. Now, we were lucky because we Patrick Horgan who could take penalties from outside of 21 yeah. and could score them. Um, but I remember I got woeful abuse there and geez, it was funny abuse kind of in a way like on Twitter after the Ireland final that year because I think Kilkenny and Tip played that year and Kilkenny hacked two of the Tipperary players down and they got two penalties and both were saved. Yeah. Because it was outside of 21 and three on the line which meant a very like disadvantageous sort of penalty taker. Um, so I got the blame then of course for that type of stuff. It was the only issue I ever had with the timing. It was just that we were, you know, um, I didn't mind per se for Cork because, as I said, we were haunted to have Hoggy. Um, but I just feel that I, it would want to be something extremely dramatic to be changing in the middle of the championship. Like, but, but look, it is what it is. It's done and dusted. And the later I got in the year, I wouldn't, years in my life, I wouldn't have been able to meet, make that ball and I would have had to throw it even higher. <laughs> so I'm probably better off. <laughs> So you, you mentioned the penalty 2012 against Wexford. You did that technique and there was nothing about it. It was, I suppose, it, it, listen, it's very obvious. You do it in an All-Ireland final and Patrick Kelly, you know, came running out to meet it. Now you're like, there is a million watching on television and this is huge. And then you did it in the replay and you did it from a free and the clear put everyone on the on the line and you smashed it through the whole of them. I have to say, we we're saying at the, at the start of the show, the drama when you were coming up to take them was fantastic. Yeah, do you know, Brian Whelan, actually, um, he followed me on Twitter there when I retired. And like, when, like Brian is obviously a legend of the game. And he put up a nice tweet. I, he, I wasn't linked into one of my friends, actually screenshotted since it on to me. And he said that the drama when I was coming up, like, I, you know, when you're in this, you don't feel it. Um, so, but it, it was the big thing for me, I, the 2013 goal, I know which one of them it was what gave me the most enjoyment wasn't the fact that the penalty or whatever like that I turned I looked at my teammates and I saw them celebrating and it was just me being able to bring like as a goalkeeper unless you save a penalty you don't get the adulation or you don't see the emotions of the other players because you're in the middle of a game making it yeah you just see their backs absolutely and the big thing for me was like I actually after seeing the video like I see Pat Cronin Luca Farrell Hoggy you know, all came and lads jumping for joy and being able to bring that to your teammates was something that was, was great and it was cool to see. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, it was just... That's, a, that's an interesting one. Do you sometimes feel a little bit detached from the team for that reason? Ah, uh, you do as a goalkeeper. Like, up until 2017, Pat Ryan, like, we, like, I was very lucky, right, that, like, I worked under, look, one of the greatest managers of all time in Jimmy, like, and he made us all feel like a community and it was absolutely fantastic and he left us to, you know... Like I felt so involved with the team. Um, but then when you do get in as a goalkeeper, it, it is a position where you are completely different. Like, you know, yeah. uh, like Hoggy makes jokes with me all the time. As soon as you come outside the small squares, like being a fish out of water, like, you know, your, <laughs> your, your skill levels go way down to where you actually wouldn't think. But um, so at the time it was great, like, and stuff like that. But then the next time that I felt that again was 17, when Pat Ryan came in as a coach, 
and he made, didn't make, he just proposed that we changed our puckouts. Um, and I kind of got back more involved in the team again, you know. Um, so, because uh, in 16, you know, as a goalkeeper, like, it's either you hit the ball very long and hopefully make a save. But when the penalties were gone, the next time I was kind of more involved in the games again was 17. Like, so yeah. it's a fair point as a goalkeeper that you might feel that you're a little bit distant. But I think nowadays, look, it's, it's gone to the stage where you have to, to put a pucker into a fellow's hand from distance. So they're kind of getting more involved again. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned 2017 because I was in Thurles for that Tipperary game and like Tipperary were strong favourites um, for that game, but you were outstanding. And I remember talking to The Rock before that game, we were previewing it and Galloway had beaten Tip in the league final and they had done a good thing with Cahill Mannion, dragging Paddy Marr across the half forward line and stuff. And I remember asking The Rock about this and he went, he just he just started laughing and went, he blew, he, he brushed it off. And the reason I know he brushed it off is because that's exactly what he did that day. I remember seeing it and your pookouts were a huge thing for Lee Han and, and uh, Harnady and, and it, it was a different type of pookout, was it, Anthony, in that it was all based on leaving space and these lads breaking into it. So you weren't hitting players anymore. You were hitting kind of squares of space. Yeah. Um, so, as I said, Pat was a great, uh, great help that year. So he came in and basically just allowed the goalkeepers to have the freedom to go for, I suppose, what would they say, harder puckouts um, in a more dangerous area because we were at a time where, I suppose, if you looked at the percentage of our long puckouts, we just weren't winning them. So he asked us to kind of bring it back a small bit, you know, to more to the half ordering. Like when I first started playing minor in 21, you went back into the calls, got your pocket hurley and drove it as far as you could. Yeah. But, you know, look, teams are after catching on to that. And what happens is you actually compact your forward line. So therefore, that's you're, you're actually shooting yourself in the foot. Um, but you're having six and six inside the 45 rather than, you know, every team is at us nowadays trying to create space for the full forward line. So we started doing that in 17 from pockets, um, where we kind of tried to initiate. And it's actually not that you were hitting pockets of space. It was, like, for us, it was just, if the movement was there, we had to just, the goalkeepers had to improve their skill, where if, let's say you said Conor Lehan made a run 10 yards, by the time he was on his stride, you actually had to have it two yards ahead of him so he could catch it while right. turning. Right, so you're hitting yeah. the moving target then, which is Ooh, even harder. More, yeah. So, in fairness to Pat, as I said, he allows us, and from, I remember we were in the second pitch in Carrigaline training in November, and when he first introduced it to me and I was standing there going, geez, Pat, you're mad. Like, I, I can't do this. Um, and he got us practicing, gave us the thing. And just fortunately enough that year, it kind of helped a bit. Right? And it gave me huge confidence, you know. So um, yeah. It definitely it definitely did because you have so many puckouts in a game and it was almost guaranteeing your possession and other teams weren't weren't really ready for it. And that was reflected in obviously your two Munster titles, um, you know, in that time. So like, did 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 they, when did you find them starting to get figured out? Like, I know Limerick wouldn't even bother following the players. They'll just keep their halfback line in their positions and that kind of scuppers that plan. So that's exactly what happens. You either have a zonal defence or you have a man-to-man defence. And that's yeah. basically where hurling is at the moment. Like when you look at the half-back, then the opposition, do they hold, do they go outside? Um, do you know, like, you'd have to obviously try and change it. Then, uh, like, so when we started doing this, uh, I'm, come here, I'm sure knowing someone's going to listen to this and go, hold on a second, we were at that since 14, 13, 15, <laughs> whatever. Um, but I suppose it was just, we had gone from such a poor year in 16 to such a, a high in 17 that teams probably went, oh, Jesus, look what they're doing. They're after revolutionising. So we didn't revolutionise anything. We just basically tried to improve on our weaknesses and our aerial ability at the time was considered to be a weakness. So we just had to maybe lower the height of the puckouts and get moving targets and use our pace as our, as our attributes. So, um, 
when did I start catching on? I suppose every team, uh, Derek McGrath actually came into the dressing match. We played him in 17, I think, after the first game. And he said they had focused so much on our focus that they forgot about themselves. And in the other semi-final, in it, they flipped around and they held a different thing and they ended up beating us. Now, we were unfortunate with, a, with um, being down to 14 minutes at the time. Um, yeah. But um, I suppose teams did start to set up more, uh, what would I say, they were definitely more switched on uh, from 17 on. Yeah. They felt that we had changed other things. And, but like as I said to you, look, we're not the only team that do that far from it. Other teams are starting to not... So imitation is not what I'm saying. They're trying to improve on it and do their own thing. And you can see a lot of goalkeepers now are asked to hit moving targets, hit shorter targets, whereby, again, like I said, when I first started playing Jay, he was back into the goal, puck out early, and as high and as long as you could give us, that's the way you pucked it out. But I remember your puckouts gaining such a reputation. Like, I mean, I was at that Waterford game in the set in the other and semi-final that year, and you put one out over the sideline, and a huge cheer went up in Croke Park, like yeah. Waterford were after getting a point. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Yeah, because I, I actually, it was, uh, you know, I kind of, I don't really look back at games. But I look back at that, and Derek McGrath, I'd say, nearly hit the roof of the, the whatever side. <laughs> so happy, but yeah, I suppose like you kind of look. I don't know. Do you take it as a compliment, or do you take it as a? Well, you know, should. You should take it as a compliment. Yeah. But um, but yeah, and like again, like my penalties, like we addressed earlier, like there was many a puck that went wrong. But the big thing for me, and going back to Pat, was Pat told the players in seventeen that he was asking me to change something, and I was going to make loads of mistakes. So we needed to back them up. And the big thing for me that year, and the players don't get enough credit, was they turned over balls that I missed hit or I missed pucked or whatever like that, and won them back and. Nothing came at a score, so nothing came of me hitting a bad puck out, and everyone was more focused on the positives. Um, so that was the big thing, like, but um, yeah, like, I, I actually do remember it, I do remember it, yeah. Um, but it look, I don't know, I suppose it, we had to do it, otherwise, we, were, we weren't going to be able to do anything, you know. And again, yeah. the biggest thing from everyone says it actually the movement of the forward line that's actually the key, and the willingness of the forwards. We have a job, we're supposed to put a ball to a certain place. And if we can't do it, then you're not in the team. You know what I mean? Um, so would, it was really that's would, not not me really. Would would that cheer though? You know, when you hear that cheer, would that make your next one? You go, geez, I better go for an easier no. one this time. You know? No, 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 no. no. Go again. Go again. I, had, I, had, I was encouraged to go again. Like you know, it was the one thing that Don Log kind of taught me when I was playing. He used to go for, like Don Log used to do similar puckers back in the day. Like you know, when yeah. I first joined the playing. Charting and stuff, and I remember a couple of games there where he'd go for one, he put over the sideline, he'd go for it again, exactly same pocket. And I kind of said to him one day, he said, Look, they expect you to go along the next time, so go again. And you know, if you're doing the right thing, and that's the big thing about, you know, like I, I, when I coach teams, like if you're trying to do the right thing and you make a mistake, well, fine, okay, I've asked you to do the right thing. And they, Cork were asking me to do that, and if I did it wrong, and obviously it's my fault my skill level wasn't high enough, but if I'm trying to do the right thing, I was told that I could drive on and do it. Um, so it was just the confidence of having that behind me allowed me to go again and again and again. Otherwise, you hit one bad one in a game, the rest were done by the 45. And sure, that's not what you're asked to do. Yeah, it undermines the whole thing, obviously. Yeah. Come here, like you look at football, like every goalkeeper in football that can do it now, like he's he's told to, you know, the game has changed, like, uh, you know, completely. So he, if, if one of those goalkeepers make a bad kick out, and actually all of a sudden he kicks it long, so the other team are swarming around the break, the big midfielder was up, breaks it down, and all of a sudden they're on the counter attack, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, well, there is, there is, there is a, I do, t- I, I like Don Logue, Don Logue would be tick enough to go, here, well, listen, there's no way I'm, I'm, you know, backing down off this, I'm going to go for the exact same one, I can imagine exactly how he would, uh, his mind would work that way. That's why he was so good, like, that's yeah. why he was so, he had no, 
he had no fear of stepping back and going right. I hit a bad puck up there. No, he didn't hit too many bad ones, to be fair to him. No. But if you hit one, overrun or hit one, she didn't stand back and say, right, that's me done for the game. I'm going back yeah. into my shell and long. You know, so and that I mean, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, ticking off in a in a good way there, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> I, know, I know what you're saying. It, and and that's, that's a huge compliment. He was very, um, you know, he was very not stubborn, but he was very, um, you know, strong in his own mind about his own yeah. ability. Like so he was whatever he like. Uh, Look, you could go back over the videos and see how good he was. Like you know. Yeah, no, he definitely was. One other controversy I want to ask you about is the 2017 yeah. Munster final where the Clare backroom team robbed your slitters. <laughs> When did you when did you notice that your slitters were rubbed, or did you know your slitters were rubbed, and why would they have rubbed your slitters? Like so, this fierce talk around Cork about Cork having magical slitters that we I don't know <laughs> what in the name of sweet Jesus people were. So basically, the slitters I would have taken into goal were the official All Star slitters that are official only slitters or whatever ball we're using, but they were just worn in two or three days beforehand in training where the rims were not standing up too high. That's all they were. Nothing magical. And were you peering down? Were you peering down the rims, or was that an old trick of Don Logue's? Come here. I, I never looked. Even when I played with Don Logue, I don't remember him doing that. But maybe he did. They're just basically on maybe a Tuesday night or a Thursday night before we play championship. It was we're a very They were just warning at training, and it was just they're a nicer ball to strike. So of course Don Logue was in the backroom team at the time. I'm not putting two and two together. We had a joke about it since, like because I actually met him for a coffee once. So I came in after the warm-up and next thing, Pat Keane and Breen Hurley. So Breen Hurley is my goalkeeping coach and Pat Keane is the, the logistics officer. But two great characters and two two very close friends of mine. So Pat goes to me, your ball's a gun? Or Richie Moody <laughs> said, your ball's a gun, your ball's a gun. And I was like, yeah, Richie was our, our Missouri time. And he, I said, what do you mean the ball's a gun? And he goes, the ball's a gun, the ball's a gun. And uh, next thing, uh, I said, uh, where are they gone? Like? He said, some carefully came along and fired them into the crowd. <laughs> so what, what what they hadn't realised is Pat Keane is so good at his job that not only had I I don't know a dozen or two dozen Pat had a hundred warning balls inside in the bag so he came along handed me the new things the slitters and off I went as if nothing had happened so I didn't it rocked me for about 10 seconds but all I had to do to Richie was say run over there now get Pat tell him bring the bag over and the umpires were I don't know what referee was reffing the game but loved it the two lads were sound out and they were like Jesus look we didn't see him uh, work away but he actually messaged me that guy messaged me after and apologising and everything because come here look if, if you know again maybe like puckout if that's what they're worried about they were overthinking about our puckouts and changing the slitters and stuff but um, fortunately that day we, it didn't it didn't um, it didn't affect us too much I think they actually changed their slitters that day as well they normally used all star and they had a different slitter that day so I know they gone that far in the length to try and change it but right so they'd hope they'd hope to throw your all star ones out that you liked and then there would there'd be no other choice but to use all the balls that they brought on the day or else ones that we hadn't ready or worn in and stuff like that or ones they worn in yeah come here like you're going to make me out to be a nutter here like in this program and keep <laughs> worn slitters and fecking no I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in all this stuff I never played hurling this is very interesting stuff to me like I mean yeah, and O'Neill's football is an O'Neill's football, right? That's it. Yeah. If I, if, it's like me saying to you, right, you're about to take a free. Uh, give me that O'Neill's football and here have a, I don't know, a different style of football completely. You're kind of going, well, it's a bit lighter or it's a bit heavier. And sitters are the same. The sitters have changed, like, you know. Um, yeah. Most teams know you come and start there some Cork, right? Like, and uh, especially with the yellow slitter being brought in. But, um, but yeah, but it was just... But, yeah, but we, we, we know from tennis, to use a tennis example, when new balls come in, the fast servers love it, right? Yeah. Same thing. I, don't like to do it. I wouldn't like 
See, the new ones are harder. Basically, they can come out of the packet brand, brand new. They can be absolutely lovely. The rims can be small or they can be big and the things like that. And it just basically changes. Like, and any hurler will tell you, free taker will tell you, like, if the rims are big and a slitter, like, you're just not getting the same contact in the ball. Again, no, people might think that, like, I can guarantee the older generation listening to me here now going, no wonder they've won nothing and no wonder Nash is gone <laughs> and no wonder that. Like, it, it does 100%. Ask any decent free taker or any good free taker at any level all the way up if the rims are big in a ball number one you're going to break your hands with catching it and number two the slitter is not going to travel the same way like so right. and, um, and would, it, would, just, would just one or two training sessions the week of a game yeah, tear one, them down one, enough one, one. 10, or 15, 10 or 15 pucks would wear in the ball not a bother um, right. uh, so like and it just it would have just changed the, the ball would have been a lot nicer and easier to take strikes with or control and stuff like that and like every team come here, I don't know any team that wouldn't have liked the fact and that's all they were nothing magical Nothing at all. They were just warning sitters, um, and we just got lucky that Pat Keane was so good at his job. It didn't make any difference. That's a good one. Come here, before I let you go, you've transferred from Kenturk. I'm sure that was a huge, yeah. um, you know, psychological thing for you for you to do. You're gone yeah. to your cousin. I didn't realise you were Barry Nash's cousin from Limerick. You're, you've transferred to South Liberties. Yeah, so in fairness to Kenturk, they were absolutely fantastic, and I rang the chairman, Kieran Fisher, straight away when I, look, I hadn't, so when I finished, I was finished. And I always said to Kent Turk that when I was finished with Cork, I was finished with Kent Turk as well because um, it, it was just always in my head. Don't ask me why. So I rang Kent Turk and I said, look, that, uh, my uncle actually rang me, my uncle Noel Nash. And he said, I always promised him a year, you know. That was when you were drinking up in Limerick a couple of times and you have to back it up now. No, in fairness, like I always said I would. Like, so when I was growing up, I bought my family from Limerick. So my mother has a nephew, Albert Shanahan, who would have played in goals for Limerick as well around the times of Joe Quaid. Um, so he's on my mother's side and he would have played. He, my grandfather, Paddy Shanahan, is actually still, I think, the honorary president of the club, but he was chairperson of the club as well. So that side of the family would have been involved in it. On the other side, my father had five brothers that would have been on the team as well. So I would have actually gone to matches where I had one cousin and I had, I think, five uncles playing on the same team. Right. So I would have watching them play more than I would have watched Cantor because we used to go down and spend weekends down there and just always in my heart I always wanted to play with them um, so Cantor as I said were absolutely fantastic and said that they knew the transfer form would eventually come and it's a lovely way to finish out my career um, and now I'm fortunate enough that my uncle Mick who would have played for Liberties is a selector um, and Barry his son and Brian also his other son Brian uh, would both be playing on the team as well so I finally get a chance to play at my family, um, which is which is nice. Now, come here. I'm sitting here in March saying that I'm going to be able to play. I'm a 36-year-old crock. <laughs> my back could give way and all of this could come to nothing. But um, I'm actually doing a small bit of coaching with them as well. So it's um, it's it's uh, it's nice to do that as well. Well, I will be doing coaching with them as an unfortunate statement um, when everything opens up. But, um, but yeah, no, look, it's, it's a nice way to finish out my career and all my friends in Cantor were very open to the idea. No, they were disappointed, obviously, um, but they were very open and very, very, um, very nice to me about it, really. Um, and always said that the welcome was always there in Cantor because, look, I played all my hurling with them. But it's just something that I always wanted to do. And uh, so, it's look, I'm looking forward to getting going, number one, and uh, hopefully it'll go well. Yeah, fingers crossed. That's a lovely little story. It's a great way to finish your career. I, I completely, completely yeah. agree. And that's the point. That's the point. Like, you, and there's nothing else to it. Like, you know, like you'd hear rumours and you hear all this rubbish. Like, but look, yeah, no, the big thing for me is that, like, I, I 
you know, we won in All Ireland with Cam Turk in 2017, I think, in Tamil Ireland. And I looked around at all my friends, and uh, they were all hugging their cousins, their brothers, their whatever, their uncles that were supporting us for that. And my family were there, absolutely. But we're the only family out of my family that wouldn't, that would have played for Cam Turk. So while I had my best friends on the field, and it was one of the best feelings of my, my hurling career. Um, I just would love to play on the same jerseys my family does, and uh, and I'm look as I said, I'll be like a little ten year old running onto the field the first time I do get to wear the jersey. Um, I think I think I think the rumours you're probably talking about is that it's JP McManus's club and you're going to be a millionaire for transferring up. Is that is that what, is that what you're talking yeah, about? If that was the truth, no, would I be? Would I be <laughs> you know, look, the, the rumours are rumours. Mayor, you know yourself from playing over the years. Yeah. Um, rumours will follow people everywhere, but. Um, yeah, no, it was just, looked, it was just absolute and Superman. But you know what? It's silly season, like, you know, with, with everything going on at the moment and no Jay going on, never just wants to talk about something. But, uh, like, uh, you know, 99% of the comments that I've received were very positive. Um, and, all, and like you just said there a while ago, when people actually do hear the story, which they didn't know, um, they go, oh, look, that is, an, and it is to finish my career. That's it. I want to be able to finish it. I want to be able to finish it that way. And I gave everything I could to Cantork. Um, and now hopefully I'll give everything so liberties for however long is left in my body. And, yeah. Uh, the plan and look I do think after giving as you mentioned a while ago I'm after giving what is it 20 more than 20 years nearly to Cork at this stage that um, that people just understand why I'm doing it so yeah but look I think, I, don't, I think you've explained it fairly well there Anthony anyways anyone listening will will know the connection you know that's there and not to be minding all the rumors Anthony come here listen I've taken up enough of your time thanks very much and congratulations well, on a brilliant career thanks very much appreciate that Well, when I started running, I suppose I didn't stop, and when I got the chance to go, I said I'd stay going, so it opened up. We're only the small little fish out there, so we are, and uh, we're trying hard to make it through. But it's hard to get the brakes when you're the smaller fish. Because I love this county so much, you know, and it's just, I'm delighted that the lads, the lads did it for the people of Walford today, because, like, I, I'm, heart, I'm heartbroken. I let it go.